This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hello, and welcome to episode four of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that explores post-war history and the reasons why the world is like it today, all done through the lyrics of a number one smash hit from the legend that is Billy Joel. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm here with Tom Fordyce. And Tom, are we ready for the next part of our never-ending story? Katie, we are. And today... Because Billy always takes us in strange places, doesn't he? We jump from history to politics to economics today. It's Johnny Ray. Yeah. Doomy singer, sort of that weird pre-rock, pre-Elvis. Not quite club singer, but sort of in this weird in-between period that I didn't actually know much about. I didn't know much about him either. I know he's almost like the missing link between Sinatra and Elvis. And he had, I believe, sort of cred with the the black soul crowd. Yeah, I'm willing to have my mind expanded on this topic. Do you know what I found again, a bit like with Doris Day two episodes ago, mm. that my first exposure to Doris Day was George Michael on Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Johnny Ray, do you know what comes into my head? Uh, I can't even imagine. Poor old Johnny Ray, singing sad songs on the radio, broke a million hearts in mono. Oh, come on, Four Dice. <laughs> Dexie's Midnight Runners. I have to say, that song came out just when I moved to the Great British Isles, and I couldn't really get my head around that strangled vocalizing of Kevin Rowland, the kind of, yeah. Johnny Ray. Got lots of yodeling, lots of uh, cracking at the upper register. So I can't say that I even understood what he was singing. I didn't know that he mentioned Johnny Ray. So the video to Come on Eileen, it starts with Johnny Ray arriving at Heathrow. Oh, is that what that is? Yeah, and all these girls screaming. It's like, when you watch it, it's pre-Beatlemania. Beatlemania. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, they're losing their collective noggins. And he comes out of the plane, and he's all, like, tall and gangly and boyish, and the girls are just melting. It's incredible. Now, so you and me don't know that much about Johnny. No. But as always on this podcast, Katie, we're joined by someone who does. And this week, it's Kathy Unsworth, author, journalist, expert in that pre-rock era. Kathy, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. So my first question, as always, I want to picture this person. I want to picture Johnny Ray at his peak, what he looks like, what he sounds like. What he looks like, he's, well, as you said, he's very tall. He's quite angular. To me, he looks a little bit like Lee Marvin. He's got that sort of profile with a little turned up nose. He's got a hearing aid in his left ear because he had an accident when he was 13 years old, which was caused by a, a, a blanket toss. I don't know if you're familiar with that activity. Um, a Boy Scouts jamboree. He was thrown out of a blanket, landed badly and some straw went in his ear which burst his eardrum and rendered him deaf in that ear. Well, partially deaf. So he's got the hearing aid. He's tall. He's skinny. He's very emotive. He uses the microphone. He runs around the stage. He uses the microphone like no one else had ever really used it before in a way that an infant Morrissey might have been honing in on, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> and and speaking of Morrissey honing in, didn't Morrissey also crib that uh, hearing aid shtick as well? Yes, he did, yeah. And uh, the, to make it a trilogy with those great 80s singers you've mentioned with Kevin Rowland, Mark Almond also loves Johnny Ray. Ah. And he does 
He does a very good version of the Lotus Blossom, which which is is probably Johnny's most mysterious number, and the one that that for me sums up his strange androgynous appeal the best. Mm. Now, Katie and I were watching a few videos, Kathy, of Johnny in action, and you know sometimes when you watch a performer from many years ago, and you get it straight away. You can see the connections. We were struggling a little bit, Katie, weren't we? We couldn't quite work out why he had that effect he did. Yeah, the the thing is, he looks a little lounge singery. Uh, I mean, of course, he's wearing his, um, you know, his lovely tux or a suit, suit and a tie. And yeah, he does a little arm flinging here and there. But I have a hard time understanding what accounts for how he so excited all these young women. Frank Sinatra had sort of started that with his bobby socks, and uh, Frank, you know, himself, he's not, a con- you know, sort of a really good-looking guy like Dean Martin is. He's kind of an unusual-looking, quite frail little chap as well. So may- maybe it's the frailness, the vulnerability, but there's also the weird thing with Johnny is that when he started, hardly anyone saw him, and because he sings, sometimes when he sings, he sounds more like a woman than a man. You can't tell if he's black or he's white. The American radio was so brilliant in those days with all those little stations and and the music crossing the land that was just judged, I guess, on its merits of how much it affected you to listen to it rather than what the performer actually looked like. So I think it's a combination of his apparently very intense um, performances that when he began in this nightclub called the Flame Shea Bar in Detroit, where he was discovered that these... These were so intense. And also, I think he's sending a signal. He's a bisexual man. He's sending a signal out to other little weirdos out there who know they don't fit in, that he's on their wavelength. And so I think all these things feed into his appeal. I love this idea that he was an outsider in so many different ways. So you're saying he had this vulnerability, this androgynous vulnerability. He obviously had a disability with his uh, hearing. He also was performing in this black club and had quite a following there. I find that interesting. Now, what do you think his attraction was to the African-American audience? Well, he he's had an older sister and she had some Billie Holiday records and he he was really into Billie Holiday and Laverne Baker, and he probably identified with their the suffering and and sadness in their songs. He, he it's where he was a little farm boy. He grew up in the place called Dallas, Oregon, which was far from the beat and track. And um, obviously, that disability he had, he didn't even tell his parents for a whole year that he'd gone deaf in his left ear. Probably that music saved him and gave him, he sung in the church choir, he found his way onto the radio when they moved to Portland, Oregon. And he started singing on the radio from when he was about 15. So I think that probably music saved him in that way. And he felt attracted to those women and their stories and he could feel their pain and and he could understand it. And he could also channel his own into that beautiful emotional music. He had those really evocative nicknames, didn't he? The Nabob of Sob, the Prince of Wales. Yeah, yeah, W-A-I-L-S. And also don't forget the Million Dollar Teardrop and the Cry Guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, his first hit single was called Cry, wasn't yeah. it? And then on the B-side, the little white cloud that cried. 
And he did used to end his shows in tears quite frequently. Proper tears. So, was this? Was he a performer? Was he someone who could just, for a farm boy, for a shy farm boy, would he just turn it on on stage? It was really important to him because of his deafness that he needed to make a connection. And the audience, he was desperately trying to make the connection with the audience with these this performance. And I guess, yeah, the thing that came out of the church as well as the thing that came out of the radio, which the same ingredients that made Elvis, actually, the church and black culture, gospel and R&B made Johnny. When he first started, did he make his first splash on radio or was it just clubs or was it the fact that television was just starting and he was able to surf that wave? What accounted for his just overnight popularity? Uh, It was that single cry. I mean, his first single, which he wrote himself, was called Whiskey and Gin. And that got a lot of radio play. And that's one where you really can't tell if you listen to that one, if he is a black woman or a man or a white man. And and then he had a record deal from his performances in the Flame Show Bar. He was um, discovered there and he got onto Columbia Records. And when he did Cry, that was that got massive radio play. And I think that went on to sell three million copies across the world. And it was massive here as well in, in London. Um England really took to Johnny Ray, as you've said, with the crash barriers having to be installed for his first visit. And and he never lost his appeal here, even when he fell on hard times. He, When he came back to the uh, the London Palladium, there's a brilliant recording of him at the London Palladium where you can really hear all those girls screaming. That 10 years later, he came back and got a 15-minute standing ovation just for turning up. So wow. Johnny just, I think he just reaches the lonely parts in everybody and that... He was just in that right place at the right time for as music was developing and as, as you say, as technology was developing. He seems to have had almost a, t- a two-part career, Cathy. There's this sort of 50s stuff. Tony Bennett calls him the father of rock and roll and Ringo says that the Beatles listened to Chuck Berry, Little Richard and Johnny Ray. And then he gets dropped by his record label in, what, 1960. And then he has this, this second coming in the 60s over here in Europe. Yeah, there's a, a really sad story about behind him getting dropped by his uh, record company. It's uh, He had another operation on his ear and it was a disaster. This was in 1958 and it rendered him so deaf that he couldn't properly hear the musicians he was working with and he wasn't able to learn any new songs. He also had, there was some dodgy um, managerial practices for, from his first manager that made him ending up owing loads of money to the IRS. So he was really unfortunate in many ways. As a result of this, all the big songwriters of the day, like people like Burt Bacharach, they bypassed him and he never got any new songs coming his way that, that were making everybody else famous. So he did set up a foundation called the Ray Foundation to help people with deafness, despite the fact that he never recorded a new song after 1961, I think it was. He was so massive here and in Australia that they love him there as well, that he was he was able to sustain himself. He also had a bad alcohol problem as well, which feeds into this. And some people think that it was his lack of judgment compounded by his ear problem and compounded by the fact he couldn't get any decent new material that meant that he strangely seemed to drop rock and roll that he was part of founding at the exact time that Elvis kicked off at, in 56. That, so. that is the thing that really struck me because he was so huge and he was just, you know, an incipient, a proto rock and roller. And he didn't 
make that final. It wasn't even a leap to rock and roll. It would have been just like a, a little step over the threshold into this whole new world that would have sustained him. And especially since, you know, make a virtue out of your limitations, you couldn't really hear, you know, he could be a little more shouty and punk rocky at that stage. And in fact, I remember in my, my reading before we met up today that he was a little bit down on rock and roll, poo-pooed it a bit. So uh, why was he hostile to it? I, I honestly don't know. Perhaps he thought it wasn't as pure as a form as the R&B and jazz that, that he'd grown up on. He wasn't very keen. One of his big hits here was Just Walking in the Rain, which is a really interesting song that was originally done by the prisoners, so-called, because they were in prison when they wrote it. And and it's a, it's a really beautiful, doo-woppy sort of song. And he had a massive hit with that, but apparently he didn't particularly like it either. I think his judgment was skewed, actually, at the time. And I think that his alcohol and pill problems probably fed into some of that, because I think his strongest album is in the big it's called, which comes out in 1957, his third album. And he did choose all the material on that one. And it's got that song, The Lotus Blossom, which really is a brilliant, swampy, foodery, brilliant, almost sinister, but very pre-rock and roll. It sounds like he was real in so many ways, Kathy. Like the sadness you see on stage and the melodrama was reflecting what was really going on in his life. Yeah, he had loads of horrible things happen to him because... Uh, he was caught soliciting a few times in uh, various vaudeville. And he, it, the press never got hold of these stories at the time, but that was always haunting him. He was married for two years to a woman called Marilyn Morrison, who apparently she thought it was a gen- that it was a genuine marriage, but some people say it was a sort of lavender arrangement set up by her dad, who was a nightclub manager. But he did have a very genuine love affair with Dorothy Kilgarren, who you probably know, was a investigative journalist, and she was really big in America. She had a syndicated column, and she, I think she was on TV a lot. And she was looking into the uh, JFK assassination when she was found dead, uh, apparently from an overdose, and she had been having an affair with Johnny for for some years, and had been trying to big up his career with her column and. Her death also left him completely heartbroken too. They didn't call him the cry guy for nothing, did they? Yeah, it's like he couldn't catch a break. I mean, he was set up, you know, he was in the right place at the right time, as you say, and he had the opportunities, but it seems like he couldn't really parlay it into longevity. For instance, he was a star in the 1954 film, There's No Business Like Show Business, alongside Marilyn Monroe. I mean, that's kind of a a good gig, right? Yeah, you would think so. And I think he really enjoyed doing it. And Ethel Merman's in there as well, isn't she? The fabulous Ethel. But he, he was once asked, like, why didn't you do any more movies? And he just said, because no one ever asked me. Oh, Johnny. <laughs> it doesn't seem like he's bursting with ambition. Yeah, I think everything came difficult to him, basically. And that's probably reflected in his performances of how difficult it is when he's sort of pouring that emotion out. He's still, you know, it's... It's a real exorcism for him on stage every time, I think. So there's this period, Kathy, where he comes over to do a European tour and he's doing with Judy Garland. And it's this incredible story of Judy Garland when she's 
coming towards well she's a, she's getting married for a fifth time Johnny Ray bisexual Johnny Ray is her best man she's marrying a gay man she's taking all manner of pills and they somehow are trudging around Europe trying to perform it's it's a sort of tragic comic weird little I don't know. It's very tawdry, isn't it? It's sort of late 60s, I think, mm. we're talking about. Yeah, 1969 when, when Liza, um, Liza, sorry, sorry, Judy. Judy comes to get married to Mickey DeVinco, or Mickey Deans, as he calls himself, in um, Chelsea Old Town Hall, and Johnny's the best man. And they throw this big party afterwards in Quaglinos, and nobody comes. And uh, the reason that I say Liza is because she... This, she said to her mum, sorry, I can't make it, but I'll come to your next one, which was... <laughs> That's what, that she knows her mum. I mean, talk about cynicism. But then don't you think those words catch up with her when she gets married to David Gale? Oh, no. That's Abs- a whole, whole other story, isn't it? Yeah, marrying gay men really runs in the family there with the Manellis. <laughs> yes. So, so, yeah, and he apparently, he was playing at the time Johnny had a gig at this strange nightclub, which really encapsulates this weird world of London at the time for me and all these strange interconnected worlds that, that there are in these strange little supper clubs. This, there's one, one in Luton called Caesar's Palace. They're all named after, like, Las Vegas Casino. They have terrible chicken-in-a-basket food with cock-o-van, spelt C-O-C-K, ah. <laughs> over, over, and things like that. And, and as a sort of a, a guy that runs it, he likes, called George Savas, he likes to be known as Mr. Showbiz. And- Can you imagine the booking, Kathy? can't you, where, where Judy and Johnny's agent has gone, listen, great news, I've got your booking at... At Caesars, they've gone fantastic. Caesars, yeah, it's the one in Luton. Ah, yeah, just just off the M1. Yeah, imagine. but Tom Jones had played there before. Surely <laughs> Bassey had played it with. Yeah. Right. So that that was kind of the thing. Like you read it now and you think that is so tragic how the mighty have fawn. And then it turns out well, you know, it's kind of a tawdry, seedy uh, variety show vaudeville circuit, you know, even then. Yeah, it's that that's the glamour of of and like the Batley working man's club, you know, those places that actually made some people really famous. So what I find really interesting is because a lot of these, the promoters and the managers and at the time are gay and they're all part of this secret world that brings people together to f- sort of lose themselves in music and elicit sexuality. And I guess it, you know, being gay had been made legal in this country for men in 1967. So we're still very much on the fringes, open to the exploitation of gangsters. And Johnny does find his way in, in, in a, a contemporary novel, actually. I don't know if you know The Long Firm by Jake Arnott. There's a brilliant scene in that where his gangster Harry Starks, he was clearly, you know, inspired by Reg and Ron Cray, goes to see Judy's disastrous Talk of the Town performance. And she joins Johnny on stage at Caesar's Palace to do this this amazing cover version of Am I Blue, which I don't know, you can find some footage of them doing this online and it is quite tragic. But this performance they gave us night, that night apparently was so tear-jerking. It went on to inspire, apparently, the writing of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina by Andrew Lloyd Webber. But she was already at that time an hour late for the show she should have been at, the talk of the town in London. So she, by the time she arrives for that gig, um, she's getting bottled off and bead and a, a glass just smashes at her feet and she just runs off in tears, which is the scene that's in the long film. It is tragic. And then 
they go on that Scandinavian tour. She comes back and she dies at, in Chelsea at the age of 47, completely worn out from all that abuse. Wow. There's so many connections, Katie, aren't there? The, the weird thing about this podcast is you do, we think these things are only linked by Billy Joel's imagination. And then you see these little tendrils and things like that. So now I'm thinking Judy Garland was addicted to, was it Dexedrine towards the end? And then Johnny Ray is mentioned in a band who are named after Dexedrine, Dexy's Midnight Runners. There is one more Dexy's connection I can make to that, that when Johnny was starting off, one of his pluggers was a man called Al Green, who isn't the same as the Reverend Al Green, the soul singer, but he did also help the career of Jackie Wilson. And there's another Dexy's Midnight Runners song for you. There's a, I'm so interested in the contrast between the emotion and the melodrama as performed by Johnny and also as experienced by his true believers. And then the contrast between that with his very sedate, personal manner, like he's not filled with braggadocio when you see him interviewed. He's not puffed up. He's not, you know, Mr. Arrogance and Ego. He's very demure and to me, it's almost like an absence of charisma. I guess I'm just so used to big loudmouth show-offs yeah, yeah. in show business. <laughs> yeah, well, you normally have to be like that to survive, and maybe that's just exactly why Johnny couldn't survive properly. He did all right when he had his second manager, um, Bill Franklin, who he was, I think he was his boyfriend, they did all right together for about a decade, but then they fell out, and without him, Johnny... You know, he's been told at the age of 50 to stop drinking by his doctors. And then a doctor about 10 years later says, oh, maybe it's all right if you have the occasional glass of wine. And so from 1980 to his death in 1990, he just drinks himself to death. And and I do think it is connected to how uncomfortable he felt in that world and probably what feeds you, destroys you, you know, being on stage, having people looking at you all the time, having people questioning you all the time and... And, and being under such scrutiny, and especially when he'd had part of his life when he could have been arrested and destroyed for his sexuality, it's a cautionary tale of the music business. How are you feeling about Johnny as you hear about him, Katie? Because I keep coming back to that Dexy's line, poor old Johnny Ray. Like If I try and put myself in his shoes, yeah. you're right, he doesn't get the breaks. And then this weird world that exists, this this world where gay men can't be outwardly gay, but there's a sort of secret understanding... What a strange way to live your life. It's interesting because he had all of the all the elements in place, all the ducks were in a row, and then uh, no pond for the ducks to swim on, it seems. It just goes to show you that luck is so much a part of the equation in success in show business because he had the talent. He so captured the imagination of so many people just on to the future. I didn't know that, Kathy, about uh, how much he was an influence for Mark Almond as, as, as well as Morrissey. Yeah, you can totally see it though, can't you? I mean, his singing is so filled with that same kind of emotion. And, you know, Mark Almond for me was the gateway into this entire world. The, f- the first time I saw Soft Cell on Top of the Pops, that was my moment of, oh, I found my fellow weirdo here. <laughs> I know where I'm going. And it, I think what I think is lovely is that you find out people like him will then lead you to people like Johnny Ray and Lee Hazelwood and a whole plethora of fantastic lost artists who they love. And so 
you know, the, the weirdos keep it going. We keep passing it on between us, <laughs> you know, and, and learning the people that didn't really get their due. And, and at least we can say how brilliant Johnny was on this programme and perhaps remind other people about that. I wonder what Billy Joel was thinking then, because Billy Joel is, so he's born in 1949. So when Johnny Ray is having his big hits, Billy Joel is in his sort of early teens. Yeah, Yeah, so he's going to be really malleable. He's going to be really open. I guess there's not many other people that the young Billy Joel growing up in the Bronx is hearing who are going to have quite the same impact as, as Johnny Ray. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine Billy Joel turning on the radio, a cry comes pouring out, a little white cloud that cried, and seeing the girls losing their marbles over this <laughs> guy. And I I can imagine Billy Joel thinking, you know what, that looks like a pretty good way to, to earn a crust. Absolutely. And just imagine hearing it on the radio when you've never heard anything like that before. Just imagine how it affects you. I love the, the whole thing of the radio of, of, of sort of being responsible for so much brilliant American culture of all these people from all the, who came from all these different countries mixing and their music going out and they're bringing all their history into that music and all their traditions and that's the only way they can express themselves but everyone can hear it across the land in all these different radio stations and I think it's so sad today that it's, you know, they all got brought out and corporatized and now there's just a bland playlist for America to listen to when it used to have all these little pockets of of resistance almost, all, but of creativity and and it all cross-pollinated and you didn't know who was black, who was white, who was a man, who was a woman, you just knew it was brilliant music. It's a really interesting point. It makes me think about the fact that, like you say, Johnny was popular beyond America in Great Britain and Australia. I know he toured South Africa and it, it just goes to show you that there's a human connection above and beyond a cultural experience. It really, I think, comes down to the thing that you talked about, Kathy, which was his vulnerability and his his oddity, his weirdoness. Everybody, you know, who loved him had that sense of relief and release. Like, thank God I'm not the only one like this. Yeah, especially imagine if you live in the middle of nowhere in America and you can hear somebody on the radio that sounds like they know that they understand you, that they can see a little bit of your life. That is a really beautiful thing because I guess before the era of radio, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in the same way with books or magazines. That's the first time that those kids in little nowhere towns who think, hang on, I don't fit in, realise there's other people who don't fit in. Yeah, it's brilliant. So if people are listening to this podcast, Cathy, and they Mm. love the sound of Johnny Ray, and when they're done with this, they want to discover some Johnny, where would you set them loose? I'd tell him to get that Big Beat album. He chose all the tracks that he wanted to sing on there and he wrote some of them. And I did his first single, Whiskey and Gin, I love that as well because that does sound like Billie Holiday singing it. There's a brilliant, the record with the best cover is called A Sinner Am I from 1959. Which tells you everything. Which is all red David Lynch backdrop and a girl with devil's horns tempting him with her pitchfork. <laughs> but like, the cover is more exciting than the contents, which is when he's gone sort of fully loungy. And it's still less beautiful songs on there, but he hasn't got any of that, that real feistiness on there that he had before. And what was the swampy song that you'd mentioned earlier? That's the Lotus Blossom and that's on the big beat. And that is, that is just awesome. And that's the one Mark Harmon does live as well. He does it brilliant. Okay, so that's Johnny. And if people want to hear more Kathy Unsworth, 
They should probably get one of your books, shouldn't they? Well, I've got uh, my latest book came out in January. It's called Bad Penny Blues, which is itself a song title um, from Humphrey Littleton's song, which was engineered by Joe Meek. And kind of a lot of uh, the parallel universes between this book is set between 1959 and 1965 in in London. And there's a lot of parallel worlds that Johnny could have travelled through of the worlds of gangsters, gay culture, music, pop culture, pop artists, um, it's all in there. And Johnny could be happily ensconced on the soundtrack to that book. <laughs> Marvelous. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. That Now I feel like I know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about Johnny Ray. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been so lovely just to speak about him. <laughs> Okay, here is an example of a topic I knew nothing about. I didn't even know that Kevin Rowland and Dexy's Midnight Runners was slurring Johnny Ray's name as in the beginning of Come On Eileen. So this is all news to me. And now we need to determine whether Billy Joel was justified in including Johnny Ray. What do you think? I think, Katie, in retrospect, he's an absolute shoo-in. Yeah. When I've looked at the lyrics before, I'll be honest, I have questioned Billy over this one. I'm like, Johnny Ray's sort of familiar with him. But now we found out the influence he's had on everyone. And what a tragic figure as well. Yeah. I mean, I think here's an example of we didn't start the fire schooling us. Yes. We thought we knew a lot about pop culture. We thought we had nous and savviness. <laughs> but uh, it turns out that Billy... Uh, set us on the path to righteousness with Johnny Ray. And now I'm thinking, because previously I thought, well, Billy has probably just dashed this song off. Like, he's had the idea for the song, and then he's rattled the verses off, probably between breakfast and lunch. Yeah, high concept. Exactly. Now I'm thinking, maybe this is Billy's finest work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not all about just things that scan and rhyme. There's a deeper meaning. Do you know the other thing I like as well about Johnny Ray? I'd always assumed that that was a stage name. Because you get all these rock and roll stage names, don't you? At that point, over in Britain, you get Billy Fury or Marty Wilde, yeah, yeah. Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, all these sort of made-up names. Johnny Ray is Johnny Ray's name. So he's the start of those sort of, what, what would you call them? Nominative sort of, determinism in terms of being a pop star or porn star. Or porn star. Could go either way. Yeah. The so, ray that pierces you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so Johnny has given us so much. I'm glad he's in Billy's song. I'm glad he's in Billy's song. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Hello everyone. 
My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.